Well, please open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. The past several weeks, we've been in Exodus, as we've been looking at uh, God's story of liberation in the book of Exodus, looking at large chunks of Scripture. And this morning, we're going to be looking at one verse. So it'll be a little, little different. Uh, John 14, verse 6. John is one of the four Gospels which write about the life of Jesus. Feel free to use your table of contents to find it. We're in John chapter 14, verse 6. I'll read our passage this morning. Jesus has been meeting with his disciples. He's recently washed their feet. The cross is right around the corner. He's said that he's going to be leaving his disciples, heading for the cross, And they've been troubled, and they're wondering where he's going. And Jesus says this in verse 6. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is God's word for God's people. We're going to take the next three weeks to look at this passage, what it looks like for Jesus to be the way, for Jesus to be the truth, and for Jesus to be the life. And the idea is this, that the Jesus way connected to the Jesus truth empowers the Jesus life. And so this morning we're going to look at the Jesus way, the Jesus way. Now when you hear that phrase, that term, the Jesus way, what comes to mind? I know for me as I was thinking about it, I, I, it sounds like some, something, silly, uh, something silly Christians would say, the Jesus way. I can just imagine a group of uh, Christians forming a compound somewhere, and they're like, all right, well... What are, the, what are we going to name the streets that lead to our compound? You're like, okay, well, you drive down the narrow road, and then you take a right on the Jesus way, and then you make a left, and you end up on the cross court. And uh, I could imagine it you know, being something silly, some silly street name that Christians would come up with. Or it sounds like a Christian band, the, the Jesus way. Or something uh, Christians would put on a t-shirt, Right, there's the Jesus way or the highway. I can just imagine that on a Christian silly jargon t-shirt. But really, when we think about the way, what this is communicating is how to live. Ancient context, both in Greek and Jewish thought, the way was about a pursuit of living and truth. The Greek philosopher Socrates, we talked about the road. It was the method of investigating the truth. Another ancient Greek philosopher says, uh, the way shows how to think. The truth, how to pursue the truth was connected to the road in Greek thought. But it wasn't just Greek thought. It was Jewish, Jewish thought as well. Uh, ancient rabbis looked at Moses as, God, as the way to the truth. One rabbi spoke of the Torah as the way, the path of life. So the way wasn't just some abstract direction, but the way was how to live, the way of life, the way to God embodied today. And so the Jesus way is how the ways of Jesus shape the way we live today. And it's an important conversation because we're all being shaped in various ways, whether it's Jesus subculture, encouraging us to just have Christian bands and Christian t-shirts, or the American way. As Superman famously put it, truth, justice, and the American way. The American way, which has a penchant for catchy slogans and a moving vision, 
often views life in impersonal ways, disembodied ways. And so we want to consider this morning how the Jesus way can shape us in the midst of the American way of living. And we're going to do it by, there's so many things we can look at when we think of the Jesus way, but we're going to do this morning, we're going to ask four questions. Four questions. Where are you from? Who are you? What do you do? And where are you going? Four questions. There's a lot we could talk about when we think about the Jesus way, but those four questions are we're going to attempt to answer this morning. First question is this. Where are you from? Where are you from? When we think about the road, the Jesus way, it's important that we consider where we come from. And we're reminded that Jesus works in ordinary places. Jesus works in ordinary places. Jesus' death in the Gospel of John is right around the corner. And in John 19, we see Pilate uh, put a note on the cross declaring who Jesus is. He says, Jesus from Nazareth, King of the Jews. And we often are just struck by King of the Jews and we miss Jesus from Nazareth. God's son had a hometown. The Apostle Paul, when he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, he says, Jesus of Nazareth. People knew who he was. They knew where he was from. God's son had a place where he was born, a place where he grew up. If you could imagine meeting Jesus in the market, and Jesus was a carpenter, and and maybe you want to purchase a table from him, and you asked this carpenter, Jesus, it's a common name, Uh, where are you from? You know, I'm just speculating here, but I can't picture Jesus responding to the question with like a loud pastor voice saying, I come from God. I think Jesus would have responded from Nazareth. And what makes it all the more striking is Nazareth was just an ordinary, insignificant place. In fact, it was said, who, what good comes from Nazareth? Really? Nazareth? I mean, if I was God, I wouldn't choose some no-name, insignificant place to have my son, the king of the Jews, the king of the world, to be born in. Jesus grew up in an insignificant, ordinary place. And the vast majority of Jesus' life was spent there. It's it's interesting. Jesus didn't come onto the scene and say, all right, listen up. Enough of this Nazareth Nazareth stuff. Take me to Rome, all right? There's people to meet, problems to solve. Much of his life is spent in Nazareth. God thinks of place different than we do. God ministers and recognizes the value of ordinary places. I think one of the reasons that he does is he knows all of us are shaped by place. Every place has a story. In the American way, we want to do away with place. We want disembodied living. Place doesn't matter. We like catchy slogans like, it doesn't matter where you're from. All that matters is where you're going. And that was coined by a motivational speaker named Brian Tracy, who also wrote books called The Psychology of Achievement and Earn What You're Really Worth. That's how we often think of life as Americans. Place is insignificant. 
And we get what he's saying. It's don't be defined by your past. Live into your future. But the reality is, even though our past place doesn't define us, where we come from shapes who we become. God acknowledges and recognizes that we all come from a place. And that place has shaped who we are. Each place tells a story. Each place. On a grand scale, there's the story of the world. There's the story of nations, the story of states, the story of cities, the story of neighborhoods, the story of homes. Every place tells a story, and we're all shaped by it. Growing up, if someone would have asked me, or uh, if someone asked me now, where am I from? It's kind of hard for me to answer because I've lived a lot of different places. I was born in Cincinnati, and so I love Skyline Chili. And I know it's not chili. It's some kind of black tar that is amazing and glorious. I love La Rosa's pizza. And when I take people there, there's something about it. I just think it's amazing. And people think this just tastes like normal pizza. But to me, it's, it's glorious. It's the best pizza. I love the Cincinnati Reds and Bengals, not just because they're the best teams in baseball and football, but because I'm from Cincinnati. Shaped by the place I was born. In high school, my family moved from a wealthy suburb in Raleigh, Cary, North Carolina. We moved from Cary to this rural small town in Ohio, Wilmington. I was shaped by my time in Wilmington. I went from the suburbs to all of a sudden a county fair and a corn festival. And one time, I think the story is still circulating around Wilmington, the time when a pig chased me all through the fairgrounds. I was just, you know, some city boy, they thought, running from a pig shape me. Live in Columbus now. And so when I think of a farmer, I think of the farmer's market that I walk to in my neighborhood. I like the blue jackets and craft beer. And I shop local because I live in Columbus and that's how we do it. And even though I really am not aware of what's happening with the crew, the fact that they're moving makes me really angry. (laughs) Particular place, Columbus. What about you? Where are you from? What places have you lived in? And how are they a part of your story? What place are you in now, and how does that shape who you are? God cares about places because God wants to minister in embodied ways. He always ministers in a particular place to particular people. God doesn't expect our story to be disconnected from the places in which we live. That's why as a church, place matters. When we moved to Columbus to plant a church, we spent a lot of time getting to know people, asking questions. What are the values? What do people care about? Having lived previously in Texas, we didn't want to just bring Texas here. That would be ridiculous. Columbus was unique. Columbus is a different place. Texas is good. Columbus is good too. What does it look like to minister in particular places? God cares and prioritizes place. Also, the question, not just where you're from, but who are you? Who are you? We're reminded that Jesus works through ordinary people. He works through ordinary people people. Uh, Who's around the table when Jesus is having this conversation? Who does Jesus see around him? 
We know John records a number of the people and the interactions, the personal interactions that Jesus has right here. Jesus sees Judas and interacts with Judas. Jesus sees Peter. Good old Peter, his courage. says, I will follow you anywhere, Jesus. And Jesus reminds him in the moment that actually, Peter, you're going to deny me. Jesus sees Thomas. And Jesus has this interaction with Philip, one of the apostles, Uh, In the next verse, in verse 8, Jesus has been describing that the cross is coming and Jesus is going to go away, but he's going to bring them uh, in the future to a glorious home. And Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it, it is not enough for us. And Jesus said to him, I have been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip. Jesus is saying, I'm bringing you to the Father. And Philip hears this, and he's intrigued. Like, can you tell us more about the Father you're going to bring us to? And Jesus, you can just imagine, anyone who's a teacher has experienced this moment. Your entire life, you've been trying to teach something, talking about the Father. And at the end of it, the cross is right around the corner, and Philip's like, tell me again, who is this Father? Can you show us him? And you can, Jesus, if I were him, I would be like, really? The end is here, the cross is before me, and they didn't hear anything I said. Great. Yeah. You can imagine him wanting to start over, but Jesus, he takes this in stride. He takes it in stride and explains to him again, probably for the hundredth time, the nature of who he is and what he's coming to do. Jesus sees around the table ordinary, flawed people. He's not surprised by their questions. He doesn't respond by rolling his eyes and moving in another direction. He presses in and he wants to minister to and through them. Reminds me of another time when Jesus sees someone in a different way that we often see them. In Luke chapter 7, there's this interesting episode where, again, Jesus is at a table. Jesus is in a home having a meal. And he's meeting with a Pharisee. Uh, someone who at the time would have been the religious conservative, a, a leader in his community, the person, the kind of person you would want your daughter to marry, the kind of person who was respected, probably a person of wealth, wealth and influence. We think, okay, this is an important meeting that Jesus is having with this Pharisee. But while they're eating, it says a woman of the city meets with Jesus, comes to Jesus. And it was very clear it said that she was a sinner. And all of a sudden, she begins to anoint Jesus' feet with oil, and she's in tears at the thought of being in his company. And the Pharisee sees this. In verse 39 of Luke 7, it says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Pharisee thinks, What sort of woman? What sort? Jesus should know what sort of person is right here. This is not the sort of person Jesus should associate with. What sort of person? You know, we in the American way are often always comparing. We put people, we sort people out. We want to put them on sides and camps and see who's worthy of our time, who's worthy of our attention. We grew up in the age of ESPN, 
always trying to drum up controversy around who is better. Who's better, LeBron James or Michael Jordan? The answer is Michael Jordan, by the way, but you know, just my opinion. Who's better? Who's the better parent? Who's the better spouse? Who's the better Christian? Constantly comparing. We see people and we want to sort them out, measure them up. And you know that feeling when you're being measured? When you walk into a room or you meet someone and they're trying to size you up. What sort of person are you? We can feel it in the questions we're being asked. Someone were to say, where are you from? Where do you live? What neighborhood are you part of? Where, do you, where are you from? Are you from the suburbs? From the city? That feeling of being sized up based on where you live, defining who you are. What's your job? What do you do? We want to defend ourselves and our name by saying something really important. You can feel the condescending look if someone doesn't approve. Oh, a stay-at-home mom. Oh, I see. Oh, you're a mother and you work. Oh, I see. That feeling of being measured up, of being sorted. And Christians, we often are the worst at this. Constantly sorting people out, sizing people up, much like this Pharisee. We see someone walking with the Bible and we're like, oh, what, what translation do you have? Oh, oh, what church do you go to? Oh, oh, what denomination are you a part of? Constantly sorting people out. Oh, oh, you wear jeans to church. Oh, you're one who would wear a suit to church. Constantly sorting people out. We do this with social media. How many followers do you have? How many, how many people like your Instagram pictures? You know, in this story, the woman with Jesus, she wouldn't have had very many followers. Maybe none. Not many followers not a person of significance. In fact, the opposite. Someone you didn't want to associate with because they would bring you down. And yet in the story, who is the one that Jesus invites in? And who is the one he rebukes? Jesus responded to the Pharisee in verse 44. He says to him, then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. I entered your house, Pharisee, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. She's saying, you think you're real important. And this woman recognizes that before the Son of God, she is in need of his grace. Who are you? Who are you? Who do you identify with in the story? Are you like the Pharisee? Dining with Jesus, wanting to impress him with your meal? Or are you like this woman, just falling on your knees in need of his grace? Who are you? How do we see people? Do we see people like Jesus sees people? Or are we constantly sorting everybody out? Who are you? Another question, what do you do? 
What are you doing on the road? What do you do on the journey? And we see Jesus bring incredible purpose. Jesus works through ordinary work. He works through ordinary actions. Ordinary moments of kindness extended. In the context in John 14, where our passage is in John 13, we see Jesus meet with his disciples and he washes their feet. He takes time to get down on his knees and to clean their nasty, dirty feet. And there's so much significance here in what Jesus does. But one of the things that we learn is that Jesus is willing to enter into the most mundane task. I mean, think about it. This is Jesus, the Son of God. There are things that Jesus can do that no one else can. Things he can do that no one else can, and he did. He, he healed people. And right before the cross, what does he do? He does something that anybody can. He washes their feet. Think of all the important things Jesus could be doing in this moment. The people he could be meeting, the conversations he, be, he could be having, the diseases healed, and here he is doing what anybody could do, washing someone's feet. He enters into the mundane task. And you see, in our American way of thinking, for me, I think, man, this is a poor allocation of resources. Jesus, hold on, all right. There's a lot of people who could clean feet. You need to delegate that responsibility to them so you can do the more important things. Jesus doesn't see it that way. You see, in the Jesus way, he enters into the mundane tasks and brings extraordinary, glorious purposes. Jesus serves the night before he dies. He takes a mundane task and cleans feet because he's illustrating us. He's illustrating for us the kind of work he wants us to be about. You know, we talk about the American way, talking truth, justice, and the American way. It reminds me of Superman. And recently uh, with our two boys, uh, Bennett and Jack, uh, I was playing them clips of Superman, and especially the clip where Superman's flying and uh, they're five and three, and they love this, love that scene. Not like Christopher Reeves flying, where he's just like staring in the camera and his cape's flapping in the back, but Man of Steel flying, where like shoots off like a cannon. And they loved it. And so I'm picking them up and throwing them around on the couch, and, and, we're, and uh, we're playing Superman music uh, in the background, which I think should always be playing in our home. It just gives you the sense of like purpose and, and significance. And Bennett, our five-year-old, he says, I want to fly so I can help people. I think, man, that's neat. He wants to fly. Now, he probably never will. And there's something good about superheroes where we can, we can identify with their courage, but, but sometimes this fascination with superheroes and their special abilities can prevent us from seeing the ways we can care and serve people in ordinary acts of kindness. Probably none of us are going to be able to fly. Probably none of us are going to solve the Rubik's Cube of all the problems of the world, but all of us can wash someone's feet. The Jesus way is about entering in to ordinary moments to care for people. And praise God that that's what he invites us to do. Praise God. It's easy, as Jordan talked about in our confession, to look at the resurrection and to worship God, and we should, and see the glory of his work in the resurrection. But you know what? I can't model that aspect of Jesus on my own strength. I'm bad at flying. 
I'm bad at bringing people back from the dead. And praise God, Jesus doesn't look at us and call us to that standard. To be and play God in all the ways we were never meant and created to be. But Jesus washes people's feet and says, you can do this. He brings purpose to ordinary acts of service. So what are you doing on the road? Are you just trying to accomplish God's will in extraordinary ways? Are you seeing someone entering into their story and considering what's one practical act of kindness that you can do with them? Who are you? Lastly, we ask the question, where are you going? We started, where are you from? Who are you? What do you do? And where are you going? A reminder here that Jesus works through an ordinary pace. An ordinary pace. Jesus wants you to live at a pace that allows you to be present. In the text, Jesus has been communicating that he's leaving. And the disciples are concerned. They're wondering where he's going to go. And Jesus talks, as we mentioned, about Peter betraying him. He talks about the cross coming. And you can imagine the temptation of the disciples in this moment to start freaking out. Jesus leaving. What's going to happen? What do you mean leave, Jesus? Is this like another metaphor? Is this a parable? You're leaving? And Jesus says this in verse 1 of chapter 14. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Jesus is saying, I'm leaving, but don't be troubled. Don't be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place, and that's where you are heading. That's your future. But the thrust of why Jesus is saying this is not they can just rapture themselves out of their present. It's not that they can just daydream about the future homes that Jesus has. It's that they wouldn't be troubled about their future so they could be present then. Over and over and over again, Jesus is saying, a new command I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. Let not your heart be troubled about your future destiny. Allow your heart to be present in the problems of the world today. And this, possibly more than any of them, can be a challenge. Because in the American way, we like things fast. We're always in a hurry. We're always thinking one step ahead. And we can never really be present unless the present leads to some advantage in the future. I struggle with this. I struggle with it. Uh, constantly thinking what the future holds and not being present right where I am. Constantly thinking of what the future holds for my kids, what the future holds for me, what the future holds for our church, what the future holds for the city, and missing the moments right now. Uh, just this past week, in fact, I was meeting with one pastor who has a number of years of experience, very wise, and, and I was sharing with him just this feeling of stress, and wondering if it would be wise to take a season to like evaluate everything and consider my role in it all and, and what God would have us do. And he just wisely said to me, you know, Jay, I find that life doesn't really work that way. 
You rarely can just survey everything and put all the pieces in place and then execute the plan flawlessly. He said, rather than just surveying everything, figuring it all out, and then living, life is right foot, left foot. It's taking one step at a time. And that's so true. Many of us, there's the temptation to figure it all out and then to live. But really, life on the road with Jesus is one step in front of the other. And praise God that that's how he invites us to live, to be present right now at the future and all that it has that we will never ultimately figure out this side of heaven isn't our burden. But he invites us with him to minister and live in the ordinary moments at an ordinary pace. Are you living a frantic life? Chasing one thing after the next? Living scattered? Always concerned about what the future holds? Do you see the freedom of the Jesus way that says right here, right now, matters. Right foot, left foot, one step in front of the other. And so as we close, if, there's, if we could summarize the contrast between the Jesus way and the American way, it's that in the Jesus way, the extraordinary God of the universe in his son enters into the ordinary, the ordinary, ordinary places, ministers to ordinary people through ordinary means at an ordinary pace. Let's join Jesus in this way. Will you pray with me? God, this way of thinking is often so foreign. Our initial Mode of operation is so shaped by the American way. We want to live fast. We want to be famous. We want to be somewhere special. And we miss all the ordinary ways that you want to work. And life is all about the ordinary. Waking up, having a meal, making our bed, going to work, building relationships with ordinary people. And thank you, God, that it's in that living that we incarnate your love and grace. Free us from the temptation to only be impressed by the extraordinary. and Help us to be faithful in the ordinary opportunities and moments of life. We pray this in the name of your Son and the power of your Spirit.